I will give you an official good morning, Redeemer Church. It's great to have you this morning. Over the Christmas holidays, my uh, family celebrated Christmas with my dad and mom and my, my two brothers and their families, and uh, we exchanged gifts, and, and my dad actually gave me and my brothers uh, one of these medallions that uh, kind of has a string attached to it to serve as somewhat of a tie if you wanted to, to wear it, and and this medallion is special. He didn't buy it. He actually got it from his father, my grandfather, who fought in World War II. And this symbol is the symbol of the Ozark outfit, the 102nd Infantry Division, who fought over in Central Europe. And my grandfather fought. And, and he came back and he wore these medallions around his neck frequently. Because when my, my grandfather joined the army, he joined thousands of men in this unit who trained together, who not just wore the same uniform and not just were in the same area of Europe together, but they went and they fought against the enemy together. They bled together. They battled together. They failed together. They won victories together. If you look on the internet for the Ozark Infantry Division, uh, during World War II, you'll read a lot about them. They saved lives. They also experienced tragedy and trauma. I read on the internet the statistics were 932 of them were killed in action. 185 were missing in action. 137 of them were taken as prisoners of war. And over 3,000 of them were wounded in, in battle. And there was a, a bond that experienced that, that my grandfather and his fellow soldiers experienced while fighting together against the enemy that was essentially unbreakable. When he got back, he talked about these men, his brothers, with great fondness. Every year or every other year, my grandmother and he would take a trip all across the country to visit with these fellow soldiers and their spouses, or they would have reunions every three to five years or something like that. And when he came back from that, he always had an extra kick in his step. There was an extra glow on his face because he got to spend time with his brothers, his, his fellow soldiers, who he remembered finally. And the, and the funny thing is, is, is he just spent maybe two years, two to three years with, with these men. But the thing about what he experienced in all of the trauma, in all of the tragedy, in all of the victory, in all of the failure, in all of the death was the fact that he had linked arms with a group of men and went to battle with them. And from that point forward, a bond of love a bond of commitment, a bond of loyalty existed between them that nothing could, could tear apart. And this is what I want you to know, Redeemer Church. When you link arms with a fellow soldier and mutually engage in the battle against the enemy, there is a bond that is forever formed. A bond of love, a bond of commitment, a bond of friendship, a bond that is eternal. And I believe that that is the very tone 
And that is the very tenor of Paul in his letter to the Philippians as we start in chapter 1 of this book. That there is a commitment, a co-laboring, a partnership that exists between brothers and sisters who are engaged in the battle against the enemy. And if you and I want to know a special kind of bond, if you and I want to know a special kind of love, if you and I really want to experience friendship at the deepest level, then we will engage in the battle against the enemy for the hearts and souls of people namely for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I believe. So if you don't have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 1. I would ask you to turn there now. Philippians chapter 1, the text is Philippians 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Let's remind ourselves of of the relationship. Paul had gone to Philippi along with his missionary friends, had found Lydia and her co-workers and other ladies by the riverside and shared the gospel with those ladies and the Lord opened their heart to believe and they became Christians on the spot and were baptized. Lydia opened up her home to have Bible studies. The, likely the, the girl who was demon-possessed, whom Paul drove out that demon, became a Christian. The Philippian jailer, who was a calloused man, uh, was impressed by the power of God and the faithfulness of Paul and Silas inside that prison. Paul and Silas go to the jailer's house and win the jailer's wife and children and other people around and in the home to Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, there is a church form among a callous jailer, a formerly demon-possessed girl and a businesswoman from Asia. And, and this partnership exists such that when Paul and Silas are kicked out of the town, they go by to this, this upstart church plant and begin this partnership. It's not just a partnership for people in Philippi. It's a partnership for people all around the world. And the Philippians say, it doesn't matter what our past is. It doesn't matter that I'm just merely a jailer or that I was just this servant girl or that I'm a businesswoman and, 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 and don't have a lot of, uh, of clout in, in, uh, in a male driven community? No, no. It doesn't matter because we have Christ and we have the gospel and we want to be used, Paul. We want to be used in order to advance the gospel all over the Roman Empire and all over the world in whatever way you see fit. So please let us know how we can partner with you. And so for 10 years, for 10 years they partner together. 
And so the Philippians sent money and clothes and resources to help Paul wherever he was doing, mes- doing ministry. Whether he was in Thessalonica or Ephesus or Corinth, the Macedonian church, which was the Philippians, they tried to help Paul everywhere that he went. And when he got to prison, they sent ambassadors to come and encourage and bless and even stay with Paul while he was under house arrest. They sent money down to the Jerusalem church. And how you think this church was poor, they were not well off, and they were sending money to help another church. How were they able to do that? Because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that was full in them. And so there is a decade-long history that exists between Paul and the Philippian church, and it, it is a history of love, it is a history of partnership, it is a history of linking arms together and using resources and gifts and abilities and relationships to carry the message of the gospel to people who desperately need to be saved by Jesus Christ. That's the context. And so we launch into this introduction, and and he says, okay, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. This is what I want to to tell you. This is kind of the exegetical. This is like the explanatory part of this passage. This is what I want to show you. First of all, I want you to see the greeting of gospel partnership. The greeting of gospel partnership. And Paul says, hey, Philippians, this is who we are. Paul and Timothy, you guys know us. We've... We've been partners with you for years. We we are, in a sense, we're your spiritual fathers because we brought to you the message. You believed that message. It changed your lives. We we had what you perceived to be spiritual authority. And you were right. We did have the authority of Christ. We had spiritual leadership. You're right. We were spiritual leaders. I'm an apostle. Timothy is my apprentice. Yes, that is true. But this is how we want to identify ourselves to you in this moment. We are servants of Christ. We're servants. It's the Greek word doulos. It technically should be translated slaves. We are slaves of Christ. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't use his clout. He doesn't use his position. He doesn't use his highness in the order of Christian, Christianity or Christendom. No, he says we are slaves. We are servants. What is a slave? A slave is a person who is at the beck and call, who is at the disposal of his master. He has no rights. He has no privileges. He is at the beck and call of his master. And Paul is saying, Timothy and I are slaves of Christ. We have no rights. We have no privileges. We surrendered all our rights and all our privileges the day we came to Jesus Christ. The day we came to faith. Paul would say, when I met Jesus on the Damascus Road, I ceased to exist as an individual and I gave up all the freedoms that I have because I now belong to my Lord and master. And and, and Paul would say, interestingly, I've never had more freedom in my life because I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And so he identifies himself. This is is who we are. This is who Paul and Timothy are. We're servants. But then he says, this is who you are. This is who you are. You are saints. You are saints in Christ Jesus. Now, when we use the word saint in our contemporary language, we normally say, well, that that lady is such a saint. We often are implying um, she is so morally good. She is so ethically sound. She is the salt of the earth in her actions. It's, it's not used completely improperly. It's not. But when Paul calls the Philippians saints, hagias, 
holy ones. He's not saying you are like the purest people on the face of the earth. You guys live such holy lives. Everybody should look at your holiness and your, your purity and say, how in the world did they ever get so pure? That's not exactly what he's saying. What he's saying is you have been made holy. You have been set apart. You have been called out. You have been selected by God himself to be inside Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ is holy, because Jesus Christ is pure, because Jesus Christ is set apart, you are set apart. You are holy. You are pure. It's about position. It's not so much about action. But he would also say because he's pure, because he's holy, and because he's set apart, you know what? You're becoming pure. You're becoming holy. You're becoming more and more set apart in Christ. And that's who you are. And church, don't, don't skip over this greeting where he says you are saints in Christ. That is, you are saints because you are united to Him. You are eternally bound to Him. You are connected to Him in an eternal spiritual way. You have the Spirit that gives witness to that. You are in Him. He is in you. It is an eternal bond that will go unbroken no matter what, and you get all of the blessings. Now, he says, this is the only time in his letters where he says, with the overseers and deacons. It, you look at all the other letters that he writes and he doesn't say that. There's a bit of an issue going on in the church at Philippi. We will read more about it, especially in chapter 4, where he urges them to come back together and to be reconciled and to resolve their conflicts. And I believe what he's saying here is he's pointing out the fact that they have spiritual authority in Philippi who need to set things right who need to bless them and encourage them and teach them and correct them and train them and disciple them in order to act like the, the united, harmonious church that Christ has called them to be. And so he, he specifies the overseers and deacons like, you have leaders, follow your leadership. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, this is who we are, we're slaves. This is who you are, you're saints, and this is what we want for you. Like, this is our desire for you. Our desire is for you to know grace more. And more, yeah, but Paul, we know grace. You, you taught us that for years. You've, you, you've written to us. You've blessed us. You've preached to us. We know grace. Grace is unmerited favor. I mean, if we take a, a test, Paul, that's one question we're not going to get wrong. Grace, unmerited favor. And this is what Paul would say. I'm not asking you to take a test. I'm not asking you to get the question to, 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 to correct on the test. I'm asking for God to give you an exceeding experience of grace in your heart, in your families, in your lives, and in your church. Listen, yes, grace. Grace is unmerited favor in spite of merited disfavor. It is unmerited favor from God even though you deserve the wrath of God, even though you deserve the punishment of God. And, and this is what Paul would say. Paul would say it is the riches of God given to you at the expense of Christ on the cross. And this is, this is what he would say. He would say, I want you to experience 
Not just the justifying grace that gets you in right standing with God, but I want you to experience the sanctifying grace that helps you to experience a sweeter and better and more exhilarating relationship with Christ. It's not merely about your position, it's also about your experience. Because Paul would say, I'm experiencing grace upon grace every day of my life, and I want you to experience that same grace. And so he says, grace to you. And he follows it up by saying, peace. What is peace? Peace is that experience of wholeness and fullness because you've experienced grace. That's what it is. Grace precedes peace because if you know grace, you'll have peace in your life. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what your situation, no matter the hardship or the trial, you have peace in your heart because everything is right with you and Jesus Christ. And so the greeting of gospel partnership is setting their identities right and then wishing them an exceeding amount of grace and peace. I'm a slave, you're a saint, this is what I want for you. I want you to experience grace and peace in your life. Now notice the gratitude, the gratitude for gospel partnership. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It says gratitude for the partnership that they have. Paul's gratitude is rooted in their faithful partnership over many years. Like, Paul is really thankful. And he's, yes, would Paul be thankful that they had committed their lives to Christ, that they had, that they had prayed to receive Jesus and said, you know what, yes, we, we want to be believers. Yeah, Paul would be thankful for that. But his thankfulness is rooted in the fact that they have said more than, well, yes, we want to be Christians. They have said, we want to be Christians, and we want to participate in all the things that Christians participate in. We don't want to just kind of get in the shallow end and wait around for a while. We want to jump into the deep end, and we want to do what Christians do. We want to act like Christians act. We want to give like Christians give. We want to sacrifice like Christians sacrifice, because we want to be fully immersed in Jesus Christ experientially in the same way that we are positionally. And so he says Paul's gratitude, Paul's gratitude is rooted in their faithful partnership over many years. Now, Paul's gratitude is rooted in the gospel. Notice, he, what kind of partnership does he call um, his relationship with the Philippians? What kind of partnership? What is the adjectival use right here? What kind of partnership is it? In the gospel. It's a gospel partnership. And he says, I'm so thankful that our partnership is not built on something else. It's not built on the law. It's not built on uh, singing. It's not built on style. It's not built on money. It's not built on social status. It's not built on a common allegiance to the Roman Republic. It's not built on any of those things. Our allegiance, our commitment, our partnership is built on the good news of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I wrote to two people last night and I told both of these groups of people, I said, you know what? We probably would not be very close friends if it were not for the gospel. We, we, we don't really have a lot in common. But I said, because we have the same Father who adopted us. Because we have the same Savior who redeemed us. And because we have the same Spirit who has sealed us and fills us every day, 
we are closer than any common friends could possibly be. And that's the kind of partnership that Paul had with the Philippians. And so Paul's gratitude is invoked. It, it, it's, it's fueled. It, it's it's um, provoked through remembrance. See that? He says, I remember you. I remember you. He says, I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm under house arrest. I'm chained to this, this jailer, this Roman imperial guard all of the time. I have a lot of time on my hands, and so I think a lot. And when I think, I think about you. And when I feel, I feel about you. I feel for you. And when I have desires, I have desires to see you. Because I remember you. And when I remember you, what do I do? What do I do? I pray. I thank God in prayer. And so, so I have a great deal of gratitude for our partnership. And get this, church. Notice, look down at the text. Look down at the text. He says, when I thank God for you, I make my prayer with what? Joy. With joy. Like when I remember you guys sacrificing money that you didn't have to give to me that I could take down Jerusalem because they were persecuted and they were suffering and you said we want to help them in their suffering. When I remember that and when I remember the fact that you brought to me food and clothes and things that I needed to do hard work, hard gospel work in Philippi or in, um, in Corinth or in Ephesus, when I remember that you did that, and when I came back and saw you again, and saw that you were flourishing and presenting the gospel to other people in the city of Philippi, and that you were winning people to Jesus Christ and standing firm in Him, as I remember that, it sinks down into my heart, and my heart swells with joy. Like I have an exceeding amount of joy in my life when I remember your work for the gospel and our partnership in it. Like I've got more joy. I'm happier. I'm more delighted when I think about your service to Jesus Christ. And so he's got gratitude. And then what does he have? He has confidence. He has confidence. He has the confidence of gospel partnership. This gratitude fuels this confidence. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on the text. Because Paul, Paul's confident. He's very confident. He says, I'm sure of this. I can take it to the bank. I'm, I'm absolutely confident of this thing. But what is his confidence in? His confidence is in God, not in men. Notice, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He who began a good work in you. This is what, God, this is what Paul would say. He would say, you know, Lydia, when we came on that riverside and I started preaching the gospel and, and, and your heart was being warmed to the gospel and, and you received Jesus Christ, Luke was, he got it right when he wrote in the book of Acts that the Lord opened your heart. You see, you didn't just, you weren't, wise, you weren't wise, you weren't clever, you weren't smart. No, you were overcome and overwhelmed by the divine authority of the Spirit of God that came in and opened your heart and changed you like that. And so, 
Lydia and other Christians, it is God who has saved you. It is God who is at work at you. And it is God who I am confident in that he will bring his work in your life to completion. And so his confidence, though, it is important that you see that his confidence is in the good work that God is doing through them. It's in the good work. Like, he's not oblivious to the reality that the Philippians for a decade have been faithful. They've been zealous. They've been fruitful. They've been sacrificial. They've been generous. Like, he's looking at their lives. He actually has Epaphroditus, who he's sending the letter by. They have sent their brother, their their beloved brother and leader in this church, down to Rome to be with Paul, to encourage him, to bless him, to give him what he needs. And, And so he's got Epaphroditus right here beside him, and he's looking at the faithfulness of the Philippian church through the life and the sacrifice of Epaphroditus, and and he's saying, you guys are really still being fruitful. You guys are loving, and you're being generous, and you're being caring, and you're kind, and and you're sacrificial to even send him down here. God's doing a good work in you. This is my point, church. You can't just say to everybody who's made a profession of faith in Christ, I see God's good work in you, and I'm confident he's going to complete it to the day of Christ. The people that you can say that to are people who are being fruitful and faithful and sacrificial and generous in gospel labor. And so he says, I'm confident because God is at work in you. And notice that his confidence is rooted at the very bottom of what is really rooting his confidence is the anticipation of one event. What event is he anticipating? The return of Christ. The return of Christ. He's like, God has started this work. He's moving in your life. He's working in your heart. You're demonstrating all of this fruit. But I am anticipating that day when when Christ will return and you will behold Him and you will become like Him and you will see Him as He is and everything will come to final and full fruition. You will take on the very character and likeness and nature of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And I look forward to that day. He transitions from his confidence and he expresses his closeness. The closeness of gospel partnership. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Man, Notice that the closeness that he experienced in this partnership is personally intense. He says, it's right for me to, to what? To feel. To feel. This word feel has an idea of both intellectual understanding and emotional attachment. It's, It's combined. It's not emotional attachment devoid of thinking. But it's also not thinking devoid of an emotional attachment. Church, I just want you to know, he backs that up by saying, he backs, I feel this way about you by saying, I have you in my heart. Gospel partnership is rooted in and expressed by deep affection for one another personal affection for one another. 
emotional attachment to one another. It, it produces sadness when your partner, your gospel partner, struggles. It produces grief when your gospel partner sins. It produces joy when your gospel partner succeeds. It produces exuberation when your gospel partner faithfully witnesses about Jesus Christ. It produces the spectrum of emotional experiences because your heart is tied to their heart and whatever their heart feels, your heart feels because you love them so much. Notice what the, the closeness is built on. If you look back down at the text, he says, for you are all partakers with me of, of what? Grace. Like the closeness that we experience, the intimacy which we have with one another is based on the fact that you and I both we're desperately sick. We were deceived and wicked. We were awful. We, we, we went our own way. We, we were the centers of our own universe. And God interrupted our lives and transitioned us from that kind of self-centeredness to a otherworldliness that took our eyes out of the mirror and upon Jesus Christ and in doing so he changed our desires he changed our hearts he changed our ambition he changed our goals and now we are all soldiers in the same army we're teammates on the same team we are fellow workers with one another because grace has come into our hearts and changed who we are that's where the intimacy comes from. That's where the closeness comes from. That's where the affection comes from is because we're, we're mutual recipients of this profound grace that God has poured out into our hearts via the Holy Spirit. And then, and then he would say about this closeness, he would say the closeness is proven through our trials. Like I'm, I'm in prison, Paul would say. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm chained. But you haven't left me. You're coming to me. You haven't abandoned me. You're providing for me. You care for me deeply. And this is the thing is I love Epaphroditus, your brother. I love him and I'm glad he's right here, but I'm sending him back to you because I know you're concerned about him. You heard that he was sick. You heard that he was ill. In fact, he was ill. He was sick. But I'm sending him back to you with this letter because I don't want you to be discouraged because your brother's missing, because you think something's wrong with him. And so I love you that much through the trials. I want to send him back to you. And so Paul is saying, I'm going through the trial of imprisonment. I'm going through the trial of proclaiming the gospel and people are mocking me and they are making fun of me and they're trying to even give me worse persecution. But I am so grateful for our partnership because you're not going to leave me during this time and I'm not going to leave you. And so if you just look at verses 1 to 7, kind of step back, what you see is a greeting of gospel partnership, a gratitude for gospel partnership, a confidence through the gospel partnership, and a closeness that exists in the gospel partnership. Greeting, gratitude, confidence, and closeness. Now church, I ask the question, what don't I see in these opening verses? What don't I see? And if you just kind of look down at the text, one of the, one of the things that we don't see is arrogance. We don't see Paul lording his apostleship over them. 
He doesn't lord his authority over them. He doesn't parade his accomplishments to them as if to say, you know, here I am, the, you know, your highness. No, I'm your servant. I'm a servant of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ, and I'm a servant of yours. What else do we not see? We don't see self-pity. We don't see self-pity. Church, we can learn from this. You and I can learn from this. Paul's in prison. He's staring death square in the face. He's suffering. He's being mocked. He's being ridiculed. Physically, material, and circumstantially, he is struggling. But instead of opening the letter with news about him, instead of opening the letter with concerns about him, instead of opening the letter by saying, you wouldn't believe how bad I have it, he is selfless and self-giving. Why? Because he's fueled by grace. The same grace that fueled Christ to come to planet earth and take on human flesh and die on the cross is the same grace that is fueling the Apostle Paul. And so he's taken his eyes out of the mirror, eyes off of himself, and he's got his eyes squarely on the people that he loves through the power of grace. Another thing that we don't see is presumption. I mean, to, to be presumptuous is to take things for granted, right? It, it is to have an unbecoming assumption about relationships, and in this case, about partnerships. Paul is not presumptuous. He remembers the Philippians. He meditates on the Philippians' partnership. He thanks God for the Philippians. He has an exceeding joy in the Philippians' lives. He writes to the Philippians and tells them how much he loves them and how much he cares for them and how much he treasures them. He is not presumptuous about his relationship with them and their partnership with one another. We can learn from that. We can learn from it. We don't see obligatory prayer. Like, Paul is not saying, yeah, you know, I have my daily devotions and, and you know, I, I pray because I have to pray. I, I pray because, well, I don't really have anything else to do because I'm, I'm, I'm shackled and chained to this Roman officer. No. He says, I, I'm remembering you. And as I remember you in prayer, my joy swells up in my heart. Like, I'm not sure Paul would even understand the term obligatory prayer. What else do we not see? We don't see lone rangerism. We don't, what I mean by that, we don't see individualism. Do it myselfism. Like Paul values partnership. Paul values teamwork. Like the idea that Paul would live the Christian life or lead a gospel ministry by himself is not an idea that he would even entertain. Paul is a soldier connected to an army. He's a brother connected to a family. He's an athlete connected to a team, a worker connected to a crew, an ambassador connected to a kingdom. And any other concept of living the Christian life would be foreign to his vocabulary. We don't see skepticism. Like he knows them and he believes the best for them. You realize that the the human heart is hardwired to be skeptical about people, to be critical of people. The, the human heart is to step back and rethink conversations or rethink the way people acted or what they did or what they said and to judge their hearts and to judge them to the point where you're condemning them rather than blessing them or thinking the best of them. And in Paul's letter, he doesn't do that. He's not skeptical. 
He believes the best for them. They are saints in Christ Jesus. They possess the heart of God that beats for His glory. Do they have problems? Yes. Is there conflict in this church? Absolutely there is, and He will address it. But He loves them, and He blesses them, and He does not accuse them of things that they are not guilty of. But why? Because He knows that they have been saved by the same grace that He has, and that in their heart of hearts, they are pure because they know Christ, because they have had a heart transplant. He's not skeptical. He's not indifferent. Like Paul's heart is not detached from Philippi. He's not, he's not impersonal. He's not neutral. He doesn't sit on the fence regarding his feelings toward them. Like He's not undecided. He, he's not taking a wait-and-see attitude about whether or not he's going to give his heart to them, whether or not he's going to give his life to them, whether or not he's going to give his feelings to them. No, he's all in. And he can be all in because Christ was all in with him. And when Christ has been all in with you, you can be all in with everybody else. Because this is the thing. You might get rejected. You might get spit upon. You might get your back turned. Their, uh, yeah, their backs turned on you. You, you, might be, you. you might be slandered or even maligned inside the church. But at the, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because Christ is not going to malign you. He's not going to turn his back on you. He's going to turn his face toward you. And he's going to say, I love you. I care for you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. It doesn't matter what those people at that church do. And so, Christ, so Paul had an open heart and an open feeling and an affection for them that persisted no matter what because he understood the gospel. And what else do we not see? We, we don't see elitism. Paul doesn't profess to live on a higher spiritual plane than the Philippians. Now this is a little different than when I said we don't see arrogance. Because if you look down at the text, um, verse, verse 7, he says, For you are all partakers with me of grace. Like he connects with them as equal partners and equal partakers of the grace of the gospel. There is no, I don't know how to say it, totem pole or, or uh, you know, high to low kind of pecking order of the Christian faith. We're all in need of grace, and if we've experienced it, we're all partakers of grace. Nobody's better than another. Nobody's higher than another. Nobody's more, quote-unquote, spiritual than another. We're all on the same level which is at the foot of the cross with our knees down, our hearts up, and our faces looking at the work of Jesus on our behalf. Those are things that we don't see in this text, and those are things that we should not see in our own lives right. and in our church. So if you want to bring this to a big idea, if you want to bring this to one theme that Paul is bringing to verses 1, through seven, this is it. True gospel partnership. True gospel partnership produces an ever-increasing, never-diminishing experience. And I'll stop there for a second. True gospel partnership produces an ever-increasing, never-diminishing experience of grace, gratitude, joy, and love. True gospel partnership produces an ever-increasing, never-diminishing experience 
of grace, gratitude, joy, and love. Like, how much better does it get? Grace, gratitude, joy, and love. I mean, those are just the fruits of God's Spirit working inside of people. That's what true gospel partnership does. And so, that's what we want to see God to work in in our lives. I said last week that the goal of this sermon series is to know Christ better. To know Christ more. We know Him now, for those of us who are in Him. We know Him. But we want to know Him better. We want to know Him more. We want to experience His beauty and His glory in a way that we, that we don't currently so that we can, we can not only have greater joy, greater grace, greater gratitude, greater partnership now, but so that we can just anticipate what it's going to be like when we see Christ on that day, right? And so I ask the question, how does this text help us to know Christ better? How does this text help us to know Christ better? I want to give you three or four ways. Gospel partnership forges paths to knowing Christ that would never have been forged otherwise. Gospel partnership forges paths to knowing Christ that would never have been forged otherwise. I'll give you an example. Well, we see it in Paul. But when I was in seminary, Jamie and I lived in an apartment complex that was full of seminarians. And so we would pile in a car at 5.15 in the morning and drive down to, uh, to the seminary and we would uh, go to class together. We would eat lunch together. We would discuss theology together when we get in the car in that L.A. traffic. I mean, sometimes it would take us an hour and a half to get 22 miles and we would just talk theology and, and it was a great conversation and we would laugh and be sharpened and all of that. But there were a few guys. There were a few guys. Don Brewer, Dax Swanson, a couple of others who I did ministry with. And on Wednesday nights, we would drive 13 miles into the mountains to a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center in Castaic. And we would lead a Bible study. And once or twice a month, early on Sunday mornings, we would drive to that same rehab center and do an entire church service for these drug and alcohol rehabilitation patients. And... On Sunday mornings, we would get up early and we would go to Starbucks and they would give us any extra uh, danishes or rolls or anything and we'd get a jug of coffee for them and we'd get everything and we'd get songs ready and we'd get the message ready and we would partner and we would drive up there and we would do this ministry. And church, I want to tell you that there's a strong spiritual connection that goes on with people who have who've experienced addiction to drugs and alcohol. It is not devoid of spiritual warfare and demonic activity and things like that. And so we would go and we would face great opposition sometimes. We would we'd experience great confusion. We would experience significant amount of, of uh, spiritual warfare where people would stand up and yell things or say things during the service. Or there, I remember this one guy in the service that 
if I've ever seen anybody or experienced somebody that was, had significant demonic work going on, it just seemed like this, this guy was experiencing it. And at the very same time, we experienced some, like, like Paul in Acts 17, some who actually received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And once they got out of the rehab center, started going to our church. But as we would pray together and drive through those windy roads, and as we would lay out the gospel week after week in the Bible study and lead the church service Sunday after Sunday, there was a partnership that was forged with those men that I did not have with my other fellow seminarians. Now, my, did I love my fellow seminarians? Absolutely. Did we thought, talk theology together? Absolutely we did. But when we took our theology, when we took what we believed about God and what we believed in His Word, and we brought it to people who were in need of the gospel and engaged in spiritual warfare on the level of preaching and singing and teaching and counseling and correcting and rebuking, God did a work of us getting to know one another better and worship God more clearly. Like, I'm just going to say this. I know the power of God and the grace of God better after having done that ministry than I would otherwise. Because I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've seen His power. I've seen His persistence. I've seen that the fact that He's the hound of heaven and that no matter what condition a person is, if His sovereign power grips somebody, it's not going to let Him go. And so I know Christ better and I experience Him in His power and love and grace better through partnership. Let me give you another one. Gospel partnership produces joy in Christ that would never have been experienced otherwise. Gospel partnership produces joy in Christ that would have never been experienced otherwise. I'll just give you maybe just two or three examples here that are like, actually, Matt, I just look at you right now because when I, sometimes when I look at you, Matt, I think about when we would go over to Constantine Elementary for that after school um, program that we started and it was difficult the kids were challenging they were erratic and and excited and had bundles of energy that was unrestrained but every time we would go over there we realized that heaven and hell were hanging in the balance for these young people and they needed to hear the gospel of Jesus and so we connected through that ministry and there were some others some of the Browns that were a part of that and and there's a there's a connection that produces joy whenever I think about that area or even that school that I wouldn't have otherwise. Ron, you and I drove down to Ranburn and um, partnered in ministry and you prayed and we talked the gospel on the way down and then we shared the gospel in that locker room and then we drove back and asked God for grace and for illumination and you and I have been in people's homes here in the church and prayed for them and loved them and I'm telling you there, there's just a partnership that exists between you and I that, that causes my joy in Christ to excel that wouldn't otherwise be the case if you and I don't do ministry together. And I could give you more examples, but I, that'll probably suffice. Gospel partnership produces joy in Christ that wouldn't be there if you didn't have the partnership. I want to say gospel partnership, third, produces a gratitude toward Christ that would never be experienced otherwise. Gospel partnership produces a gratitude toward Christ that would never be experienced otherwise. Jeff Pierce, one of my buddies from seminary, 
Uh, we partnered in ministry while we were in California doing some different things, but I actually flew him from Washington back here to Oxford back in 09, might have been 08, 09, 010. You remember this, Adam? And he preached the gospel, of, I mean, he preached the book of James. He, um, he, he, he discipled the youth in our church. He cared, cared for them. Um, I think God did a work of grace in a lot of people's hearts over the camp that we experienced. And I'll just tell you, I did ministry with Jeff. I watched and prayed for him do ministry with the youth that I shepherded. And to this very day, I am grateful for the work of Christ in his life. And it produces within me a connection to Jeff that will be eternal and a gratitude to God that I wouldn't otherwise have. And then finally, I want to say gospel partnership produces a confidence in Christ that wouldn't be the same otherwise. A confidence. I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Um, so, uh, brought Lauren on as a staff member at, with FCA early fall, and she's been pouring into the girls at Oxford High School and White Plains High School and Chiha Cheer. And like there have been a couple times when she's told me about a couple of young women who said, you know, I believe the gospel. Um, I believe the facts of the gospel. But I'm just not really ready to give my life to Jesus yet. And Lauren has asked for prayer for them and we've prayed for them. She's labored giving the gospel to them every single week and texting with them and all of that. And so we're, we're laboring in the gospel. I'm praying for her. She's preaching the gospel. We're trusting Christ. And then last week, Lauren got to go with a huge group of Oxford students to Gatlinburg to do this, this retreat where the gospel is preached powerfully. And like 20 Oxford students came to Christ. And this morning, this morning, like 18 of them are being baptized. And Lauren is part of that. And I'm part of that. And you're part of that. And this is the deal. God is saving people. And in God saving people, that makes us more confident in God. And we can know Him better through our confidence in Him. And so as we partner together, I want you to know that you're only going to know Jesus better as we link arms and do the work of the ministry. Amen? Let's pray.